All right, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Continue our study in the book of 1 John. I hope this has been helpful to you. We've seen five basic proofs for how we can know that we have eternal life. The point of the book, I said, was so that we can know that we have a right standing before God. And there's three primary ways in which we determine whether or not we have a right standing, whether we have the right, the proper belief, whether we obey properly, and then thirdly, whether or not we love properly. So those are the three primary ways. And, and John has already gone through five uh, proofs, and he's broken them down this way. The first week we, we saw that our belief must be founded and matched up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second proof was, was based on whether or not we have a proper view of sin. And then third proof was whether or not we had a proper view of the Savior. The fourth one was, do we obey God? Because it's not enough simply to believe properly. We have to obey as well. And then last week we saw that we had to have a proper love for God and His people. Because those who do not love God's people do not love God. And this week we'll see that we need to have a proper hatred. We need to hate what God hates. So let's begin reading in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Tonight we're going to see that those who know God, we'll see that in verses 12 through 14, hate what God hates, verses 15 through 17. So the first part that we want to look at is, is that those who know God. See, John had been talking all along about all these things that were um, indicative or um, it's, it's an indication of whether this person is, in, is an unbeliever. Remember chapter 1, verse 6, he said, If you walk in the darkness, you are not in the light. Ver, chapter 1, verse 8 says, If you deny your own sinfulness, you do not know God. And then chapter 1, verse 10 says, basically the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 4 says that if we do not obey God, we are not His children. We do not know God. We are not believers. And then chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, he says, if you hate other people, you can be sure that you are not a child of God. If you do not love other people, you are not a child of God. Don't be deceived. But he comes here and in verses 12 through 14, he renews their confidence in their own salvation. You see, his point is not to shake their confidence. His point is not to say, I know you're, not, you're an unbeliever, and you need to, you need to have doubt for your, um, for your salvation, of your salvation. But rather, he's showing them that, hey, I've lived among you. I've seen how you live, how you obey God. And I've recognized that that obedience is real. And because of that, I can say that you truly are believers. And that's why he piles up in verses 12 through 14 all these phrases about those who know Christ. And the first thing that he does is he, he, he addresses them as little children. There's three different ways that he addresses them. In, in verses 12 and 13, he calls them little children. 
And this is just a general address to all believers. He had done this in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he called the believers at these churches in Asia Minor the little children. And so this is just an indication of those who are children of God. But then in verses 13 and 14, he calls them, he, he speaks to fathers. This could be referring to older, mature believers in Christ. We're not exactly sure because John doesn't define who he's talking to. But then he also calls out young men in verses 13 and 14. I've written to you young men. So the point is, is that John is dress, addressing everyone in the church as a whole. Whether you're old in the faith, whether you're young in the faith, whether you're just a child of God. He's addressing them and I would suggest by implication he's addressing us. And he's saying that because he's seen the way that they've lived, he believes and he is confident in their salvation. Now, how can John determine whether or not a person is a believer? Well, let's look at this first one that he, he, he gives to them. He gives this first means of confidence. Verse 12 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. This is basically the idea of salvation, right? Having forgiveness of sins. This is what we need in order to receive salvation from Jesus Christ. But how does John know that their sins are forgiven? Is he simply trying to tickle their ears, make them feel good so that he can set them up and accept what he's about to tell them? No, John knows because he's lived among these people. This is not something that we should do to people whom we've just met, by the way. We should not go up to people whom we just met, look at their life and say, yeah, believer. Yeah, unbeliever. I mean, sometimes it's, it, it may be that clear, but remember, the, the way in which we can tell a person is a believer is the same way that John's been showing us that we know for ourselves that we are believers. What, is, what are those ways? Do we obey God? So when you come across people who are striving to and continually obeying God, then you should not be surprised if they are believers. And if over a period of time they have shown that they have been faithful in believing and obeying God, then you can have confidence in their salvation as well, just like John did. But it's not only obedience, it's also love. Do these people love other people? And remember, love is shown in the way that we devote ourselves to others, as we said last week. It's shown in our giving of ourselves. Christ was the greatest example of love, wasn't he? He gave himself as a ransom for many. No greater love than this, John says, than, in a, than a man lays down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus came to do. And if you see people who are constantly loving other people, they're giving of themselves to other people, it's a good indication that they are a believer. But you can't just have those two things because we know a lot of worldly people, a lot of unbelievers, who are clearly unbelievers, that seemingly love other people. They give of themselves. So the third aspect that is important to know about those people is what they believe. And you see, John knew these, these uh, people within this church, within these churches in Asia Minor, he knew them so well that he knew what they believed, he knew how they obeyed, and he knew that they were lovers of other people. We, when we combine those three things, we should be able to have assurance, not only of our own salvation, but of other people's as well. We can look and, and respond in, in, the, in the proper way. And that is what, um, that's how John knows. He's not simply trying to tickle their ears or make them feel good. He knows because he's witnessed it firsthand. I want you to notice how or who gets the praise for this forgiveness of sin, or, or what was the purpose for it. Your, I, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. What's the purpose, John? For his name's sake. Now, when we think of salvation, we tend to think of salvation is for who? It's for us. I mean, God is saving me. Salvation is for me. Look what God did to me. 
or look what decision I made for myself is usually how it comes out. But John says, no, your forgiveness of sins is not at all for you. Okay, that is a secondary benefit of your salvation. The primary reason that God saved you was, notice the text, for His name's sake. For the sake of His name. So that God can be glorified through you. That is why God saved you. And we should take, uh, we should take joy in that fact, that God saved us for His own glory. And we should also take heart to follow Him because He saved us for His glory. Shouldn't we follow Him for His glory? Or should we neglect what He's given to us? Should we reject the great things that He has provided for us? In, uh, in Psalm chapter 106, verse 8, we, we find the same sort of idea. It says, Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name that he might make his power known. That is what God is, about, is doing all over our city, all over our state, all over our country, and all over the world. He is raising up people for his namesake so that he can be glorified, so that he can make his power known. That is the purpose of our salvation, so that we can glorify God. And so John recognizes that, that their sins have been forgiven. But not only that, he also recognizes that they know him who has been from the beginning. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. He does not say, I am writing to you fathers because you have known the, him. You have known, that is, Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you because you have known Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm writing to you because you know. You see the difference there? He's not basing his assurance of their salvation on what they did back there. They made a decision. No, he's basing his assurance of their salvation on what? On their current knowledge of God. Their current following of God. Their present following of God. That is what John recognizes. Because... The Christian life is not something that began in the past and it's going to take place in the and something's going to take place to us in the future. No, it's something that continues and goes on. And I've said before that in the scriptures, those who are saved are called what? They're called believers. Not the believed. Not the people who once believed. Because when God does a work within us. What does he continue to do in us? He continues to do that work. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. So if God caused them to believe, then they will be believers. They will continue to believe. And so that's why he uses the present tense. Because you continually know him who has been from the beginning. And then in verses, uh, at the end of verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, the evil one um, we can find in chapter 3 and verse 12. Turn with me there. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. John writes there. Well, let's start in verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So who is John talking about here? Because Cain was of whom? Who is this evil one? He is of Satan or the devil. Chapter 5, verse 18. Turn there. Chapter 5, verse 18, John says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, or we could say, practices sin, continually practices sin, and we'll get to that later in our study. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is another reference to Satan. Turn back to chapter 2. So who is John talking about when he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Well, he's talking about overcoming the devil. 
Now, what does this mean to overcome? How can we overcome the devil? Does this mean that we can put down sin once and for all in our lives and we can reach this higher plateau of living where we, we don't have to deal with sin anymore? Now we're above it because we've overcome the evil one. Is that what it's referring to? Well, I would suggest to you that that's not what it's referring to. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you, have may, you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Believers in Christ also take on this same idea of overcoming in First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And then chapter 5, verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we have all of these promises that say we will overcome not only the evil one, but the world that he controls in a way. And I say that he controls, but really he's, he is the God of this world, small g. But remember, God is ultimately in control. So anything that Satan does has to be in submission to what God allows. Well, we have all these promises. How do we go about overcoming the evil one? And, and will this take place in our lives, uh, in our lifetime? Well, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we have a way in which we can overcome the evil one. And Paul says there that we need to put on what? The whole armor of God. So that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And having done everything to stand. So we have the power now to stand against Satan. And I think this is basically the idea that we now have the ability to say no to sin. Okay, As an unbeliever... I hope you recognize that, that you did not have the ability to say no to sin. You constantly were in love with your sin and with yourself. And as a result, you would continue in this sin. And you didn't, even when you wanted to do something that was righteous, you did it with the wrong motive. Even that was bathed in sin. But now as a believer, because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Now you do have the power to say no to sin. Now God is at work within you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, where it was not before. So those who overcome the evil one, those who overcome Satan, are simply those, is, is simply another way to describe believers. We are people who now can overcome the evil one. We do not have to be his slave Remember what Cain was called? It says, as Cain, who was of the evil one. We could say he's a slave of the evil one, a servant of. No longer are we a slave of Satan. Now we are a slave of righteousness, as, as Paul says. And now we can obey God. Verse 13, we find another uh, way to describe believers. And that is, that you know the Father. At the end of verse 13 it says, I have written to you children because you know the Father. And obviously this is the only way that we can have salvation if we know the Father. In John chapter 14 verse 7, as we read during the scripture reading this morning, we read, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. So John gives another way in which we can describe believers. Verse 14 of 1 John chapter 2 we find, um, we find the fourth way, or I'm sorry, the fifth way, and that is that you are strong. Verse 14 says, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. We looked at that one already. I've written to you, to you young men because you are strong. Because you are strong. Being strong is seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. As believers, we now are strong. We now can fight. We, we now are on God's side. 
we have God fighting for us. So it, it, it makes sense that, that John would call believers those who are strong. And then the last one is found in verse 14. At the end it says, And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word of God abides in you. And this is a phrase that John has used before in this book, and he will use again. Those who are believers abide in Christ, John 15. Remember the vine and the branches? Those who are believers abide in him. They continually get their life-giving source from the vine, Jesus Christ. So if we are believers, we are those who abide in Christ. So John ticks off all these things in order to show them that, yes, I recognize that you are a believer. And that you should not, be, you should not have doubt of your salvation. That's not what I'm trying to do, John is saying. I'm not trying to give you doubt, but if there are people in your midst who have been teaching you these things that, that are contrary to what the truth is, then I want to show you what the truth really is. And that's why he says, if you don't obey God, you're not a believer. If you don't have proper beliefs in God, you're not a believer. If you don't love other people, you're not a believer. But then he comes here and says, but because I know you, I know that you are believers. So um, you should take confidence in it. And so John reminds them that, that they are in Christ. And that they are part of God's family. And that they should love God's family. And that they should do everything that, that is necessary that comes with being part of God's family. And that includes excluding themselves from the things that Satan's family enjoys. And that's where we come to verses 15 through 17. Where John transitions from God's family, verses 12 through 14, to Satan's family. Do not love the world. There's two primary commands that we have in, this, in these three verses. The first one is found at the very beginning of verse 15. It says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, um, the reason that we are not to love the world is because love is proof that there is no real spiritual life in us. We'll get to that in a minute here. But, but if you want to have proof of your spiritual life, if you want to be able to check your spiritual pulse, then you need, you need to determine what your relationship is with the world. Do you love the world or do you hate it? And that'll be a good indicator of whether or not you're a believer. In order, in order for us to understand how, um, what it means to love the world and how we are to obey this command, we need to understand what John means when he refers to the world. And I think that you know that there are several ways that we can use this term world, even in the scriptures. There are three primary ways that this word world is used in the New Testament. The first way is, obviously, when we think of the world, what do we think of? The created world, the earth, where we live. Okay, And then the second way that it's used is the world of people, humanity, all humans. We could say all the world loves sports or all the world loves soccer. We, mean, we don't mean all the earth loves soccer. We mean all the people in the world love soccer, right? And then the third way that world is used in, in the New Testament is when it's referring to the system of evil that is dominated by Satan. And this is basically everything that is in opposition toward God, toward his word, and toward his people. Okay, those are the three ways in which the term world is used. Now let me go through a couple passages and I'll give you a little pop quiz and see if you can figure out which, which uh, way this term world is being used. 1 Timothy 6-7 We have brought nothing into the world and we can, we can take nothing out. Would you say that that is referring to the earth or humanity or the system of evil? We have brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. The earth. Good. All right, that was a little harder than I thought it was going to be. Let me try an easier one, okay? John chapter 1, verse 10 says that Jesus, or that the world was made through him, Jesus Christ. Earth, humanity, or system of evil? That would be the earth was made 
through Christ. Yeah, you could also say humanity, but in that case, it's referring to the created world. All right, this one's a little bit easier. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood what, through what has been made. System of evil, humanity, earth. Those are, that's earth as well. Okay, let me, let me uh, switch gears here and go to John 3.16. This is a very familiar verse for us. For God so loved the earth. No? For God so loved humanity that he gave his only begotten son. We know it can't be God so loved the system of evil. That can't be it. So it has to be the second one, that God loved the world of people. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, according to the... Um, and so death through sin, so death spread to all man, for all have sinned. That's a little bit harder. That would be referring to humanity, the world of people. All right, then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, you formerly walked according to the course of this earth, this world of people, or this system of evil? System of evil. Right. Ephesians 2. Oh, James chapter 1. I'm almost finished here. You're doing good. Uh, you're doing well. James 1, 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To keep oneself unstained by the earth, by people, by the system of evil, right? And that is what James is referring to there. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you figured out my pattern, I started with the earth ones first, did three of those, did two with the humanity. So this one would be what? System of evil. And then James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship, friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the system of evil that is in this world is actually in, in, in enmity against God, is in opposition against God. So let's look back to our word world in verse 15. It says, do not love the world. What is John referring to? Does John tell us not to love the earth that God has created? No. Does John say that we are not to love humanity? We're not to love the people. What is John referring to? He's saying, do not love, do not give your devotion to this system of evil. And he'll explain why as we go through. But do you see why we should hate the world? Because, as James says, we are in opposition towards God. When we love this system of evil that, that Satan has set up. And so, for us, we need to choose our allegiance. Are we going to be with God? Or are we going to be with this system of evil, the world? We need to choose. Because if we are, are trying to stand on the fence between God and evil, God says it doesn't work. You can't serve two masters. Pick one. And if we're going to pick this one, be a friend of the world, don't try to say that we're a friend of God because we are in opposition toward Him. We hate Him. And so that is the challenge that we have today. Joshua stated, stated it this way in Joshua chapter 24. He said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of this world, but as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Do you hate what God hates? God hates this world. God hates this system of evil that has been set up in opposition toward Him. God demands our full allegiance. And we should have no longing for another. We should be satisfied in Him alone. 
So the first command is do not love the world. The second command is also found in verse 15. And it's used along with the conjunction, nor. It says, do not love the world, nor the things in, uh, in the world. So we could say, do not love the world. And then we could start a new sentence and say, do not love the things in the world. Now, what are the things in the world? Well, John explains there in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, and then he gives three things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That is what John is referring to. Now, before we get into these things of the world and what they are referring to, let's look at why God wants us to be opposed to them, why we should not love them. Verse 15 again says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we love the things of this world, we do not love God. It's that simple. John is trying to paint this as black and white as he possibly can. If we, do, if we love the things of this world, we don't love God. We are in opposition toward him. And so John says, stay away. The first thing that he says that we should hate is the lust of the flesh. Verse 16. The lust of the flesh. Lust is basically the desire for evil things. The flesh is basically our sinful nature. So we could say we should not love the desires of our sinful nature. Now God did create us with desires. And desires inherently are not evil. But often what we do is we take these desires and we twist them when we should be desiring God and His glory. Instead, what do we desire? The things of this world. We have these desires of our sinful nature that are really in opposition towards God. And so desires in themselves are not wrong, but when they turn into an evil desire or a desire that is opposed to God, then it is wrong. And we have all sorts of references that refer to the lust of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Among them we too all were formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. You see, that this is how we are described before we knew God. This is what we went after. We went after the lust of the flesh. That is what described us as unbelievers. But now that we're believers, shouldn't there be a difference? Shouldn't we be marked by putting that those things aside and hating those things? Well, the remedy for loving the lust of the flesh, uh, Paul gives us several several remedies. First, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Romans 13, verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then Peter gives us a remedy as well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And the reason that we should not give in to these lusts, we should not allow them to control us, they take up our affection and our devotion, is because we are made new creatures. Paul says in Galatians 5.24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and, and its desires. So the lust of the flesh is one of the things of this world that we should hate. But not only the lust of the flesh, but the lust of the eyes. And we see this at the very opening of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, that Eve uses her eyes to lust after something that God told her she did not need and she should not have. The Scriptures say in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to her eyes, and that the tree was desirable, we could say, in her, her heart to make her wise, she took from it. And that is the way that sin is, isn't it? We start out with just a simple glance. 
And then we start to dwell on it. We start to desire it. And we start to pursue it. What would that be like if I had that? You know, I really would like to be wise. I really would like to be satisfied in this area of life. And so then we pursue it and we take this thing which God said not to have. And that's the danger of our eyes. Um, we'll see in Joshua chapter 7 when we get to the story of Achan that Achan did the same thing. He said, his recounting of the story of when he took the goods from Jericho, he said, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shiner and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, then I coveted them and then I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent. You see the three aspects of our sin? He saw... He coveted, he desired in his heart, and then he took. The remedy is found in, in David's Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanity, and revive me in your ways. So David calls out to God to change him. But we've got to be careful, especially with this aspect of our life, this lust of the eyes. We look at what other people have. We say, man, they're living a really good life, and I'd like to live like that. Or, I really think I could use that thing. And sometimes these things are not inherently evil, but when we exalt them above God, and we move God out of first place in our lives, then it does become sin. It becomes a vice because it becomes something that is, has twisted our desires. The third thing that we should avoid and that we should hate is the boastful pride of life. Some suggest that this means boasting about one's wealth. You know, if they're really rich, they, they're showing off their possessions and they're boasting of their social status or their lifestyle. But the focus of this context is on people who operate purely from a human level. And they have no spiritual dimension. Remember what we said in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are not spiritual people. So the boastful pride of life is referring to those who are unbelievers. So I would suggest that this idea is basically a security of one's life to the point that it produces a boastful overconfidence in one's good, in one's goods or oneself. We get so consumed with what we have that we don't think we need anything. We set God aside. I mean, the person who thinks he has enough wealth and enough property to protect himself and ensure his security really has no need for God. We'll just set him aside. You know why? Because I don't need him. And that is what the boastful pride of life is. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ, then we will hate the boastful pride of life. We will hate those who, who act in that way. We will hate ourselves when it rears up within us. Now, these three things in the world appear attractive. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They appear attractive, but they are deceptively evil. And they will overtake us. It's deadly to go up against them. But if we are true believers in Jesus Christ, we have weapons that can stand up against this sin that tries to get in us, get within us. Remember, put on the full armor of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, div but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the point here is, those who know God, verses 12 through 14, love what God loves and hate what God hates. So do you know God? 
then you should hate what he hates. You should hate this system of evil that is in this world. You should hate the things that are in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And John gives one final, reasons why, one final reason why we should hate the world and the things in the world, and that's found in verse 17. Why should we hate the world? Because verse 17 says, The world is passing away, and also its lust. Everything in the world is passing away. The world has a temporary nature. The world's system is slowly headed for destruction. We start down this pathway and we think it's going to lead us to satisfaction and glory and fame and all sorts of great uh, gratification, but it's actually headed for destruction. And so the reason that we should not take part in, we should not love the things of this world is because it is passing away. The world is deceiving, isn't it? The system of evil. It seems permanent. It seems like it will never go away. It will keep on antagonizing us. But really, John says, no, the world will actually be crushed. This system of evil will finally be put away when Jesus puts it underneath his feet, puts Satan underneath his feet for the last time. And where Satan is thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And then he gives a final exhortation in verse 17, the second part of verse 17. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. He goes back to giving them assurance of their salvation. Remember in verses 12 through 14, he says, I know that you've been forgiven of your sins. And this is how you, uh, this is the, the response to those who have been forgiven. They will follow God and they will live forever. It stands in contrast, notice, to the first part of verse 17 that says, the world is doing what? It's passing away. But those who, those who do the will of God will abide forever. You see the, the contrast there? There's a passing away and there's an abiding forever. And this is not something that's new to John. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Mark chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We need to be about doing, doing the will of God. What is the will of God? I mean, it's so hard to define sometimes. Is it God's perfect plan for me? Is it some kind of mystical thing? All it is, is basically following what He has desired for you to do. I like to think of it as God's desire. It's actually a better term that helps us understand it a little bit more clearly. So we could say that those who do what God desires live forever. So the question that we should ask ourselves is, do we do what God desires? Do we do what God desires? Do we follow God? Simple obedience. Sometimes we make it too complicated, too complicated even for ourselves to follow. We have this whole list of things that we think we ought to do and because this person was doing this and it worked for him, I'm going to do it. And because this pastor told me this, I'm going to do it. It's just right here in the scriptures. It's in black and white. Now obviously not every area of life is clear. But that's when we seek what God's desire. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 10, that, 5 verse 10 says that we should... Um, we should be pursuing what God desires. Find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Find out. And usually the problem with, with, with our mindset is not that um, God hasn't revealed to us what He desires. What is it? Is that we haven't sought Him out. We haven't done Ephesians 5.10. We haven't done, tried to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. And as a result, 
we wallow in spiritual confusion, in a way. We stand there and wonder why we can't figure out where we're going in life or what God wants for us. It's because we haven't even searched out in the scriptures what He desires. And that is as simple as it gets. Those who do what God desires will live forever. And today we've, we've seen that God does not desire that we love the world. So we could say that God does not desire or God hates the world and the things in the world and we should do the same. If we love God, then we should hate what He hates. And I think the worst example of this is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Turn, turn with me there. I'm going to give you one final example. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul is giving his final greetings in verse 9. 2 Timothy 4.9 says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. Now, when Paul says that he's deserted me, he's not saying he went on to another church or you know, he didn't really like what I had to say. We had a little argument and we had to get away from each other. Notice what he says there. For Demas, having loved this present world, what would John say that Demas is? Would John say that Demas is a person who abides in Christ? Or a person who is a child of darkness? Those who love the world do not love what God loves. And, by implication, really hate God. Are in opposition toward God. So when we see this man Demas, who was in the body of believers... He was probably involved in acts of service within his local church. And yet, why did he desert Paul and the, and the faith? Because he loved the things of this world. You see, we can deceive our own selves. We can think that, yes, we're okay. We're fine. God saved me. But is God working in you? Is he working in you to hate this system of evil? Because that's a good indication of whether or not you are a believer. And so his defection, Demas's defection from the faith, proved that he never really was a lover of God. He, he participated in what James would call spiritual harlotry. Because James says in James chapter 4, You adulteresses, you harlots. Don't you know that being a friend of the world is actually going against the covenant you have with God to be loyal to God just as you would in a marriage relationship? That's why he uses those strong of terms. Adulteresses. You spiritual harlot. How dare you? You cannot be a friend of this world. What is it that is holding you back? What is it that you love most about this world? We need to put that aside and love what God loves and hate what God hates. Recognize that those things that we are involved in, those things that we take on, are actually harming our relationship to God and perhaps could be an indication that we do not have a relationship with God. And so if we love God, we hate what He hates. Do you hate what God hates? Do you hate the world and the things in this world? Well, take courage. Because if you do, you can be sure that this world is passing away in all of its lusts. And one day we will be in a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be able to worship the risen King, Jesus Christ. And we will not have to deal with sin anymore. We will live in a world that is not no longer cursed by sin. 
Won't that be a great day? When we will be able to enjoy the things that God enjoys. And we, we will be able to love God with a love that we've never had before because even the love that we have for God right now is marred by our sin and our love for the things of this world. The pattern of our lives should not be that we love the world. Rather, it should be that we hate it and everything in it. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it instructs us as to how we ought to live. And we admit and, and bow our heads in shame at our lives, which are so often characterized by this world. It's so easy, you know, Father, for us to justify uh, the love that we have for this world. We sometimes say that we're doing it in order to understand what the worldly people are going through and to be able to have a, a better relationship with them so we want to be able to talk about these things with them and sometimes we just do it out of sheer sinfulness and our 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 base human nature that desires things that are against you and sometimes we we do it um, because we just don't value your word and your truth as much as we value those things. And so we set what you have promised for us aside. We set our love for you aside and we go after those things. And so because of that, we, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your help because we know that all of our strength comes from you. And Lord, you know that I'm, uh, my goal is not to, to have... Uh, this church doubt their salvation. That's not what I'm trying to do. Um, but I do want to make the word of God clear. And so I pray that you would give those who are saved assurance of their salvation. Those who are living in sin, in blatant sin, that they would not have any assurance of salvation, but that they would recognize that until they obey God, they will not have any reason to think that they should be a believer. And, Lord, if some need to be saved, I pray that that would take place, even tonight. But, Lord, we pray that, that you would be at work within our lives and within our church. We pray that we would do it for your glory and because of the love that we have for our Savior. For we pray in his name. Amen.